and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book, Amount of Works, at the Farm's official store, which is at eFarmPodcast. That is eFarmPodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the Farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. All right, folks, I've got a pair of repeaters with me for this outing and a heavyweight duo at that. One is Vincent Treewell of The Weird Part. Thank you so much for dropping by again this evening, Vincent, sir. Oh, my pleasure. Happy to be here, Stephen. All right. And also joining us for this outing is Jeff from Badgerland Legends. It's a pleasure to have him on the formal on a formal farm episode for the first time. Jeff's actually joined us for a couple of presentations on the Zoom party already. But it's great to finally have him here for a proper show. So thank you for joining us, sir. Excited to contribute tonight. So, inevitably, our subject for this outing is Weird Wisconsin. Just when you think I've seen it all as far as that particular state is concerned, I find some more incredible oddities. Case in point, Burlington, Wisconsin. This small town in the southeastern part of the state, only about 60 miles from the Illinois border, is practically Wisconsin's answer to Twin Peaks. Seriously. Beyond the idealistic small-town veneer, complete with its yearly chocolate festival, yeah, seriously on that one too, resides one of the strangest spots in the Midwest. Not only did it have a strong early Mormon presence, but it came from a breakaway sect thrust into national intrigues leading up to the Civil War. Later, it housed an especially influential club of pranksters and tricksters. The spirit of Discordianism appears to have passed through here en route to its proper incarnation during the late 1950s. And of course, there's the Burlington Vortex, the town's very own Black Lodge portal. If you're a Twin Peaks fan, a lot here will resonate with you, to put it mildly. And even if you're not... This is a shockingly relevant topic. While Burlington may be obscure, its influence is very real and very pronounced. So on that note, let's start the show.
let's start off with the origins of Burlington. This has proven to be one of the trickiest topics to find information on. Most towns in southern Wisconsin, especially those in the eastern part, commonly offer up a pretty in-depth historical account of their founding. But there's still a bit of mystery over Burlington's founding. So what were you guys able to uncover? Uh, Jeff, do you want to start us off with? Yeah. So like you said, when you look at most old Wisconsin towns, you could find a book compiled by early settlers documenting the formation of the township. Uh, these were usually published around the turn of the century. You know, I couldn't locate any such book, but, you know, a historical book has been produced since. What we know is it was settled on the confluence of the White River and the Fox River. It was long held by the Potawatomi tribe, Potawatomi tribe as a small village. Now, traces of their mounds can still be found there today. And 1799, that's our first known presence of European activity. We had French explorers there with uh, missionaries, uh, Reed Jesuits, who portaged at the Fox River. And uh, this landmass is what we now call Burlington. Now, that first land claim, it was by a son of a revolutionary war vet. His name was Moses Smith and his associate, William Whiting. Now, they made what was called a, a jackknife claim at the time. They simply carved their names into a tree in 1835. Now, it was then still a Michigan territory. Wisconsin wouldn't be a state for another 22 years. So now none of this seems too odd. It's really the story of Wisconsin. The natives, they live off the land, uh, the local tribal um, councils and whatnot. Uh, the French explorers come in along with the Jesuit missionaries. They kind of document the land. Um, send that back to the Pope. And then the English from the Northeast, the Yankees, they come in and settle the land. So the Smiths and the Whitings and some of their associates, they settled it, built their cabins, aerated the land for farming. They initially gave the settlement the name Foxville due, its, due to its proximity to the Fox River. Well, they quickly changed that to Burlington after the city in Vermont. Another nod to their New England heritage. They brought that Yankee heritage with them uh, a spirit of abolitionism included and uh, but it was far from like the aristocracy or what you think about uh, kind of the Yankee sentiments of the time. These were mostly farmers looking to stake their claim in the wilds of the great Northwest. At the time, it was the Northwest Territory. All right, Vincent, you got anything else to add to that, sir? Well, um, most of the stuff that I've researched has to do with the Strangite Mormons and that Burlington is their capital. It is incredibly important to that movement in Mormonism. Um, that is where they were welcomed. Everywhere else they were shunned. Um, they had a village in Voree, which is just outside of the city of Burlington. And it it's currently non-existent, really. It's held by the Wisconsin State Historical Society, which and they have a great uh, site there where they've preserved some of the old buildings and have a monument, and it's it's fascinating. But um, that was the you know key setting for the entire Strangout movement. Yeah, so you know, as as Vincent said, this was the area where the the Strangouts kind of a, a schismatic sect of Mormonism landed after. The assassination of Joseph Smith. So when most people think uh, Mormonism, 
or LDS, they think Salt Lake City, maybe they think Missouri, uh, parts of Illinois, Nauvoo, I believe it's pronounced, or Carthage, where uh, Joseph Smith was assassinated. Well, after he was assassinated, church leaders like Brigham Young, Sidney Rigdon, and James Strang, they had disagreements on the direction of the church without his leader. Well, Rigdon, he moved back to Pittsburgh, Young to Utah, and Strang, he came up to uh, up north to Wisconsin. Now, he settled in Burlington and created the community Vincent mentioned called Vori, and that translates um, to Garden of Peace. Now, it was a bustling LDS community. The group soon erected a Strangite church. They uh, quarried from the nearby limestone and made small houses, a blacksmith shop, schools, and a tithing house. So it was like a little kind of offshoot, a little sect of Mormonism right there near Burlington. Now, uh, we'll talk about the Hill of Promise in a minute here. Um, but anything you wanted to add there, Vincent? So as establishing his claim as the next Mormon prophet after the assassination of Joseph Smith and before his own assassination, because James Strang was also murdered with the assistance of the U.S. government um, when he was at Beaver Island. And but while he was in Burlington, he allegedly, and it's a matter of faith, it's not a matter of history, but he found a different set of plates that, of course, for those not that familiar with Mormonism, Joseph Smith found these golden plates, which he translated into the Book of Mormon. James J. Strang found another set of plates in Burlington in a farmer's field and translated them into what he called the Book of the Law. And that became one of the pillars of Strangite Mormonism. And we went there. Um, well, okay, um, Recluse and I went there. And unfortunately, the site where the plates were allegedly dug up, and it seems like something was dug up, like that actually, whatever else you believe or don't believe, that actually happened. Some plates were dug up out of the ground. That's private property, and it's not easy to get access to, so we were not able to get that. But um, that ha that's where it happened. So, I mean, that was the real capital of Strangite Mormonism. Yeah, and just to kind of add on to that, um, so the plates were discovered on a hill called the Hill of Promise, according to you know the the Strangite texts, and they were really small plates. They were two and a half inches long, about an inch and a half wide. They'd be smaller than your standard playing card. Um, so, unlike the the Joseph Smith plates. Strang's plates were verified by an independent authority at the time. His name was Christopher Latham Shoals. Now, anybody native to Milwaukee might have heard that name because he was um, the inventor of the typewriter, the first like commercially viable typewriter, as well as the modern-day QWERTY keyboard. So we got a, a Wisconsin gentleman to thank for that. Um, detractors said that Strang and company simply crafted these plates from a brass kettle and the plates themselves, they vanished around 1900. Now the plate translation, of course, done by Strang formed the foundational text for this kind of sect of Mormonism. 
it was a summary of the translation. It seemed to assert that Strang was like the the new prophet, and it was God's providence that Strang found these and was the proper leader of the Mormon Church. Um, and as Vincent alluded to, um, Strang met his demise. He was only like in his early forties at Beaver Island with, um, it was, it was a bit of a coup and also aided by the U S government in his assassination. Yes. And, but he didn't die on Beaver Island. He actually lived he made long it back enough, to Burlington. Yeah. Yes. Where he, he, his deathbed was in Burlington and he's buried in Burlington. We were able to visit his grave, which was fascinating. Uh, do you have anything else about our uh, time in Burlington, Vincent, that you want to dead? Oh, <laughs> since you asked, yes. Um, well, we walked the trail where the Burlington Vortex is supposed to exist. Now, we did it during the daytime. Well, and... let's hold up on the Vortex. Uh, okay. To the, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm in more like on the Strangite stuff. Oh, okay. Stuff yes. um, well, we visited the actual existing Strangite church. There, there still are Strangites. There's probably only like a couple hundred, but that movement does still have a vestigial existence. They hold weekly services. They are um, Sabbatarians. They hold service on Saturday, the actual Sabbath, and they have a church, a full-fledged, you know, regular building um, that we were able to visit. It, it was closed at the time, but we were able to at least stop by in person, which was really nice. And then we visited the um, historical site where they have the original buildings. And then we found the, the grave of James J. Shrine. And so that was, that was pretty awesome. It's different when you can actually see it in person, you know? Yeah, it was. The, the church was actually, though, a bit underwhelming. Um yeah, I think we actually drove by it uh, the first time around because it, uh, well, we were expecting something that was, let's just say, a little bigger. Um, it was, it's not a cathedral, no. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's not even really significantly bigger than uh, some of the suburban houses nearby. So, um, But bless their art anyway. <laughs> All right, so Jeff, is there anything else you got to add about the Voorhees plates? Uh, I know you had a suspicion on the location. I'm sure that's nothing you want to get into in the air, but uh, any more thoughts on that? Yeah, it seems like, um, you know, Vincent said on private property, I've, I've heard conflicting accounts that it may be on a public site that is kind of landlocked by private land. So some people mm -hmm. think you might be able to access it through the White River, but um, that's something I'm currently investigating. So hopefully you know, an, an expedition is in the works to, to actually locate that hill of promise. Yeah, it's uh, certainly intriguing. And um, I I do love the fact, too, it's also named after Voorhees. Um, I guess that always sort of reminds me of the Friday the 13th. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it is sort of like that kind of kooky little small town, almost like kind of a Crystal Lake-esque thing to some of it. So, um, but yes, yes very apt that the Voorhees shows up in this. Uh, so the press in Burlington has proven to be shockingly influential at the national level. Um, and, you know, it should be emphasized too, they were really instrumental in building Strang up as a national figure uh, during the era leading up to the Civil War. And then in the early 20th century, they launched another institution that would influence the nation across the board. 
was known as the Burlington Liars Club. So what was it about, Jeff? Yeah, so the Burlington Liars Club, it's been bestowing the title of world champion liar since 1929. Now, the origins of the club are built on a stack of lies, literally and figuratively. So kind of a little origin story for the Burlington Liars Clubs is a freelance reporter named Manel Hahn, or Manuel, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce his name, Manel Hahn. He fabricated a story about a lying contest between the Burlington Police and the Burlington Fire Department. Now, although there was a shred of truth behind the accounts, the civil servants were often gathered to uh, informally swap uh, tall tales and see who could tell the biggest tall tale, the biggest lie. So the winning lies were exaggerated accounts of stories that were blatantly absurd, rife with satire, and generally good-hearted in nature. So just an example, the 1963 winner came in from uh, Massachusetts, so a long way from Burlington. And the lie was, fishing around here was so bad this summer that even the biggest liars didn't catch any. So just kind of a little tongue-in-cheek satirical reference to the time. So the winning lies are often evergreen quips that harken back to, say, like Borscht Belt one-liners or even like American satire like Mark Twain's tradition, while others are more topical or culturally relevant to the time. So last year's winner came in from Daniel B. Lonis of nearby Racine. So his quip or lie of 2022 was the list price of my new car was so high I was able to use the cash back rebate to purchase my first home so just kind of a satirical rift on the economic situation with the high price of automobiles so the club it still operates and its honorary liar is revealed before the new year's of every year and everyone has a chance to enter the contest but it's costly to become a liar the going rate, it's $1 per liar. For that princely sum, you receive a membership card to prove you're not lying about your membership to this prestigious club. And although uh, the gesture of being labeled a liar in this manner seems innocent enough on the surface, the inversion of that moral dictum that we all learned in Bible school or Sunday school, thou shall not bear false witness or thou shall not lie, and that trickster-like quality, it can't be ignored. True enough. I I don't know if you know this or not, but did they create the Hodag? That was Gene Shepard of the Northwoods Timber Cruising fame that came up with the Hodag, as far as my research is oh. netted. For those who are not from Wisconsin, the Hodag is a fraud, but it's a fascinating fraud. It's a cryptid that lives... Um, way up north by now, great, the town and Rhinelander. Rhinelander, exactly. And it's kind of like a dinosaur that lives in the woods. And yeah, they they faked that to get tourism and stuff uh, like a hundred years ago. Yeah, it started as kind of a bunkhouse tale up in the north woods amongst the lumberjacks to pass the time. Kind of in the same, if it's like the Marvel Cinematic Universe as... Um, like Paul Bunyan and Babe the Big Blue Ox, the Hodag would uh, fit nicely into those lumberjacking legends. So um, I have um, named um, Gene Shepard, the creator of the Hodag, the P.T. Barnum of the bunkhouse, because he had that same kind of trickster energy 
Um, I think another thing he kind of perpetuated was a fur bearing trout where he had a taxidermist <laughs> take a trout and wrap it in like a beaver pelt and, and said, Hey, you know, the, the, the winters have been so cold in this part of the woods that the, the, the trout are even growing fur, you know, just kind of that same kind of, um, uh, kind of intrigue as the Burlington Liars Club, but actually preceded the, the Burlington Liars Club by about 50 years. Now, Jeff, it's also interesting because Burlington's not that far from Devlin, right? Delavan, yeah. Delavan, the circus yeah. town, yeah. Now, that was where um, uh, Barnum uh, was originally based out of here. Well, I know it wasn't actually P.T. Barnum who really ran Yeah, it, it was the guy. offshoot of yeah. uh, P.T. Barnum and is the Barnum and Bailey and then hey, eventually the, the Ringling Brothers circus as well all kind of um, rolled into one. Well, the Ringling Brothers, though, were on the western part of the state, right? Um, they were up by Baraboo, so more central. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So, but yeah, it's kind of interesting. Uh, uh, Devlin was also a really big circus town, uh, which is pretty close to it. So uh, you also sort of have a bit of that lineage as well. And again, mm -hmm. a major uh, nationwide circus that was there. Well, Vincent, you and I uh, also got to see the Burlington Liars Club. What were your uh, thoughts about it? <laughs> well, not to be a little underwhelming, but I, I was so exhausted after that the hike that I basically just needed to sit down and drink some iced coffee for a while. So I, I left that mostly to you. Um, it was it was interesting to see the the plaques and stuff, but I I didn't go too deep to be very honest. Yeah, was, it was. Oh, go ahead. No, I, I was just wiped at that point, man. <laughs> um, We'd have been doing a lot of walking. Yeah, it was kind of funny because when we had been driving through the downtown area, I had noticed, because uh, there's like a coffee shop slash a little bakery uh, in the floor below the Burlington Liars Club. The Burlington Liars Club was like on the second uh, story. Uh, but I hadn't noticed the Burlington Liars Club sign. I just noticed the coffee shop um, when we were driving through the town, I think on our way to one of the Mormon sites and on yes. the way back, I was like, oh, let's just stop since we got to go buy this and grab a cup of coffee and maybe like a pastry or something there. And then I was walking up and I noticed like, oh, wow, the Burlington Liars Club is actually like right here above the coffee shop. So that worked out well. We were already planning on seeing it. So I went back and grabbed Vincent and uh, yeah, we went up and uh, checked it out. Or I think I was mainly the one who went up there. But um some nice little clubhouse they've got up there there's some interesting pictures they got like kind of a the you know almost noble um illuminati like all-seeing eye picture up there a couple of other things like that um and the artwork in the whole you know it's a nice little bar that they have set up uh the coffee shop was quite good fortunately the pastries were a bit slim pickings but what they had was tasty so Probably would have been better if I had gotten in there. This was like around five o'clock. So most bakeries are getting a little low by then. But um, all in all, it was uh, certainly an interesting uh, place. Very cozy, and very charming. So, you know, that much can be said for it. <clears throat> so it, it was honestly pretty, you know, fortuitous that we were going to a different location and happened to drive right exactly past it. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, one of those who happened to stumble upon it and had no idea that that was the actual place. Uh, but fitting, though, um, there's two institutions uh, that are potentially that have potentially influenced Discordianism here, which would be 
the Burlington Liars Club, and the Strangite branch of Mormonism. Of course, Carrie Thornley grew up in a Mormon household and appears to have deliberately parried it with the Discordianism at times. A major Discordian offshoot is the Church of the Subgenius, headed by a figure who goes by the name of Ivan Strang. Uh, this clearly seems to be a reference to James Strang. Elsewhere, the uses of hoax and fabrications for mind-fucking is quite similar to the activity of the Burlington Liars Club. And then there's also the strong Fortean lineage in Discordianism. The early Forteans were represented in Wisconsin very well and the surrounding area. So should Burlington on the whole be seen as an overlooked influence on Discordianism? What say you, Jeff? Yeah, so the, the Fortean Society, as you're saying, it started near the end of Charles Boy Fort's life in 1931. And it was to promote and perpetuate his works. Now, you'd expect such a society to be like low-status, bookwormy folks, but it was anything of the sort. Luminaries and geniuses of the day were card-carrying members of the 14 Society. Wisconsin's own Frank Lloyd Wright, um, screenwriter and producer um, Ben Hecht, who he actually spent his formative years in Racine, in nearby Racine to Burlington, not far at all. Um, they were members of the 14th Society, and even a Supreme Court Justice, Oliver Wendell Holmes, was said to be a member. Another notable member was uh, the brightest mind of the day, Buckminster Fuller, along with rhetorician H.L. Mencken. He was friends with Fort, but he often agreed with him and, and took the opposite side. He called, uh, I believe he called Fort stuff, bohemian mush, uh, but it was still kind of, he was still kind of an honorary member. So none of these gentlemen or ladies uh, included in that society, they, none of them were lightweights um, in the arena of science or critical thinking. And we can't overlook Wisconsin's broader role in the perpetuation of science fiction, flying saucers, and Fortiana through the works of publisher Ray Palmer out of Amherst, Wisconsin, which is in, in the middle of the state. Now, as far as its influence on Discordianism, Discordianism, it's hard to overlook a stalwart like the Liars Club for selling discord into the culture. Now, although my research didn't uncover any direct connections between Burlington directly other than that kind of the, the Strang name, um, you know, the founding members, Thornley Hill, um, progenitor like um, Robert Anton Wilson, I'd really be curious to see what you've uncovered, uncovered Stephen. Also, too, you got to remember Raw worked out of Chicago for a little bit, too. but um... Not too far from, yeah. And on the, topic, on the topic of Chicago, I want to uh, get into what was surely a significant influence in the formation of the Burlington Liars Club. And that was a outfit known as the White Chapel Club uh, based out of Chicago. It was founded, I think, around 1890, maybe a little before then. So as the name implies, this uh, club was closely connected to Jack the Ripper. That's why it's rather White amazing. Chapel. Yeah, it was founded, I think, only a year or two after the Ripper killings. It ceased as well. So it was set up by a lot of figures within Chicago's press, many of the luminaries, for the purposes of literary hoaxes and pranks. And some of these were quite elaborate. Um, they had some overlaps with what were known as suicide clubs, which, again, if you know your uh, Discordiana, 
uh, you know, later that kind of became entwined with the whole uh, cacophony society and some of this other stuff. Well, they, they had the suicide club in California, which was sort of a discordian offshoot that uh, gave birth to the Cacophonian society, which is um, one of the inspirations for Fight Club. But not to get too sidetracked, the suicide clubs in the late 19th century were a bit different. Uh, these were effectively uh, tied to labor unions and as the name implies, uh, it was a bit like the self-immolation that the Buddhist monks engaged in in Vietnam as protests against the industrial uh, greed or the <clears throat> greed of the capitalists at the height of the uh, kind of gilded age. Uh, some of these uh, labor union uh, people would commit suicide. And one of them did so in the Chicago area, and the body was uh, recovered by the White Chapel Club, which sort of set up its own branch of the Suicide Club, and they did this um, elaborate mock funeral procession, kind of a pagan thing where they all wore robes and they burned the body on a funeral pyre uh, outside the river at the middle of the night. So they were engaged in quite a bit of elaborate uh, theatrical uh, hijinks and all kinds of stuff like that. So anyway, I have not been able to confirm if he was an actual member or not, but the head of the 14 Society, the founder, Theodore Dresser, uh, knew quite a few of the members of the Whitechapel Club when he was working as a young reporter himself in Chicago during this time frame. And again, um, you got to emphasize that Burlington and uh, White, or excuse me, Chicago are fairly close to one another. They're what, about two hours away or something, if that. Yeah, probably even less. Yeah, exactly. And uh, again, the Whitechapel Club and some of the pranks that they were doing in the late 19th, early 20th century did generate quite a bit of uh, publicity. So I would have to imagine that uh, people involved with the Burlington Liars Club are almost surely aware of this outfit. And then in turn, besides Dresser, there were other, because you had uh, kind of indicated, Jeff, there were a lot of literary figures connected to the early 14 society. Many of them had cut their teeth in journalism, and quite a few of them had interacted with some of the members of the Whitechapel Club during the course of their professional careers. <clears throat> So anyway, getting into uh, some other potential links here, you've got to look at another figure who hailed from Wisconsin originally, though he relocated to California, and that would be Mead Lane, who uh, was another early figure in the 14 Society and would later found the, um, was it the Borderlands Research Institute or something to that effect. But he is a fascinating figure uh he was the early ufologist and he was also one of the original proponents of the interdimensional hypothesis as well and in point of fact he had actually claimed to have seen a ufo I, it was a borderline a borderland science re, sciences research associates by the way um he had also claimed to have seen a ufo if i remember around 46 or something like right before the kenneth arnold sightings and he had already developed this more sort of interdimensional uh, notion of them i mean almost from the beginning so in a lot of ways he was very much ahead of his time uh to put it mildly so anyway Lane was also a member of the Fortean Society, and Borderland had actually uh, began as the sort of offshoot of it. And one of the guys <clears throat> who was involved with uh, both 
Borderland and the Fortean Society was a fellow called Paul Dore, who uh, more recently has been fingered as a uh, potential suspect in the Zodiac killings. Mm. But uh, Dore interacted uh, with a lot of interesting figures going into the 60s and 70s. On the one hand, he was involved with the Minutemen, uh, but he also uh, had ties to figures who were involved in one of the publications Carrie Thornley was active in during the mid-60s. And Dore also potentially knew good old Alan Greenfield. Ah, yes. Who was a good friend of me, of me or at least I should say was highly influenced by Mead Lane uh, at a minimum. And uh, yeah, Greenfield uh, has also interacted with Carrie Thornley quite a bit towards the end of Thornley's life. And they were both based out of Atlanta together. So, yeah, and Greenfield, he's kind of kind of got that trickster energy, too. Yeah, Greenfield definitely was around a lot of Discordians. Yeah, <laughs> I the, asked him once if he was a Discordian. He kind of scoffed at it. But uh, yeah. the, the other um, kind of offshoot I that came to mind when doing this research was um, the, the Ken Kesey uh in the merry prankster movement out of the 1950s 60s um san francisco and kind of their whole whole ethos of of this i have to imagine they were influenced well, by I the think, liars club i mean i think also it's, yes it's been really prevalent in ufology almost from the beginning because another figure who was sort of active in this network around lane in this time was uh gray barker it was a Barker or Baker? I think it's Barker. Barker, yes, I think it's Barker. Okay, so yeah, I mean, he was another one of the Mothman uh, uh, chroniclers besides John Keel, but uh, he he had definitely pranked Keel at least once during the Mothman thing, and uh, he has been on record for engaging in quite a few hoaxes in relation to that and um and then there was another figure too Mo- jim jim mosley i think there was if a i may him and mosley kind of toyed with keel when keel was going through a pretty rough time mentally and yeah yeah kind of yeah. cruel really because keel's already kind of losing his mind getting all these weird phone calls and people following him and men in black type stuff going on and people in his house for no reason and then they're playing with them as well i always thought that was kind of wrong you know yeah i mean there's definitely i think a kind of interesting overlap with that and certainly too as you're saying the more malicious nature of some of the activities there so and yeah but anyway uh barker uh lane uh and um Oh, Mosley were all sort of part of this early UFO network. The specifically ones who went in for this maybe more uh, kind of mystical interpretation of the phenomenon as well. But I mean, interestingly enough, they were also engaged in some of these, you know, like hoax activities as well. And um, you could also point to the surrealist movement as well with, uh, you know, Ben Hitch and some of these other guys who were tied up with that, I would say, is maybe kind of bleeding into some of the later uh influences on discordianism as well so i i can't help but uh believe that somebody within the early uh, discordian circles was at least aware of burlington and some of the oddities that had gone on here and um might have taken some inspiration from it because certainly you do kind of see a lot of these uh strange things like that with the burlington liars club and at least this uh maybe sort of spiritual lineage, if you will. 
No, you can see you can see some connections there. I did not know until you mentioned it that Theodore Dreiser had been a part of the Whitechapel Society. I don't believe he was actually a member. He knew oh. like a few of the members, though. Um, he was okay. very close to some of the early members. That's why I don't know if he was an actual member, but I, he almost surely would have been aware of it. And I would not be surprised if he had at least encountered or at least gone to maybe a meeting or two. I have... I actually have quite a I've got one or two of his biographies um, just to go back and look through this stuff to see if I can find some records of him going to one of the meetings or not. But yeah, it's because, of course, he was Charles Fort's close friend and mm-hmm. an early supporter, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a lot of, yeah, very interesting connections with this. And then, of course, later you had figures like Robert Anton Wilson, who became involved not with the, obviously, the original Fortean Society, which was shuttered by then, but um, some of the latter incarnations of it that began, like, in the late 1960s. And just to kind of briefly touch on it, too, but um, another revelation that uh, Richard B. Spence recently dropped was... um, the connection between uh, Forty and Frank Lloyd Wright and uh, James Shelby Downard. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, one of the first times that, or really actually the first time Downard uh, was even mentioned to the public at large was in the Cosmic Trigger uh, due to letters that um, uh, William Grimstead had sent to Robert Anton Wilson about the Sirius Rising tapes. So I, I have really started to consider the possibility that a lot of Downard's worldview had been shaped considerably by his interactions with the rights. So that's kind of another intriguing angle to a lot of this that um, hopefully I'll be exploring with Richard B. Spence in the very near future. Very cool. Looking forward to that. Absolutely. Spence is always dead on. He's good. He does his research. So, yeah, there's a lot of... um, there's a lot of interesting stuff with all of this, and I mean, we're still kind of looking into it, but yeah, I, um, especially too, when you kind of get into some of the latter stuff with like Neil Gaiman and uh, how much, I mean, you know, Wisconsin was incorporated into American Gods, and mm-hmm. that, uh, there's definitely some interesting um, possibilities to explore with all of this. <laughs> But anyway, um, let's start getting into the Burlington Vortex here. Yeah. Uh, no Gaumann in no Wisconsin and almost inevitably brings up Wisconsin, uh, David Lynch, too, who he was interacting with at the University of Madison at the time. So anyway, Burlington, I mean, it's almost like something straight out of Twin Peaks, literally. Uh, Jeff, what's the story behind the Burlington Vortex? All right. The Burlington Vortex. Um I'm going to read an excerpt from my buddy Chad Lewis's book. He just published a book called The Wisconsin Guide to Haunted Places. And he says, just on the outskirts of Burlington sits a wooded forest area that by all accounts looks like any other preserved area in Wisconsin. Yet, I have to admit, there's something that seemed off about this location. The small gravel parking lot stops abruptly at the opening of the trail leading you into the woods. In fact, there's no slow transition from the lot to the woods. The entrance to the trail looks like a hobbit door. And all of a sudden, you step onto the trail and you're immediately immersed in the dark, super thick woods. It does feel like you've crossed some paranormal threshold into another realm. 
But what I find refreshingly fascinating about this legend is that it lacks any sort of gruesome origin story. There are no tales of deranged serial killers, jilted lovers, or tragic accidents cursing the woods. The area is just weird because weird things happen here. Now he continues by stating that the area is thought to be filled with numerous vortices that play with your perception. Photos taken in the woods often come out blurry. Now, personally, I've seen ones with light streaks or orbs or like distorted faces of people uh, who allegedly or they claim to have held the camera still when this happens. And then there's other tales of, you know, the spook lights, fairy fire, will of the wisps. Um, But this and of course, the skeptics favorite swamp gas. They also come up as kind of an explanation. Now, it's certainly an area of high strangeness. Uh, when the activity started, it's not clear in what the driving forces behind it, they remain in clear as well, but I know you guys, uh, got to stop in and see it. So I'm excited to hear about your kind of, uh, your trip report. Yeah, it was definitely something, um, before we get into that real quick, Vincent, did you have anything else on the origins, possibly the vortex? Well, I've come across two books on it, um. One is by, give me one second here. Is Mary, it Mary Su- Sutherland? Mary Sutherland, yes. She's a prolific author and she's written Haunted Burlington and a number of things. And then there's another one, Tales of the Vortex by George W. Tiller, um, which credits her with discovering it. Um, and this goes on to explain many weird things that have been seen in and around that particular trail. Um, All white apparitions, uh, UFOs, orbs, um, all cryptids, all sorts of things have been reported. And, you know, I've seen a lot of the comments that, oh yeah, I saw this and I I saw that. And it does seem to be a very strange area. I, I can say that. Well, do you want to now start getting into uh, our experiences in the uh, vortex? We spent a couple of hours there. It, uh, I would say certainly lived up to its rep- uh, reputation. Yes, yes. Um, for one thing, when they say trail, okay, <laughs> maybe it's because I live in Milwaukee County. I was thinking of something paved, relatively flat, uh, like, you know, it circles around. It's not, it's not that. It's a real trail. Like, you're really hiking. This is at most three feet wide, at the widest. It's really narrow. It's not paved. Apparently, somebody put rocks down a long time ago, or there's just a lot of rocks. But it's it's hard walking, okay? And it's steep, almost roller coaster-like uh, hills. And it's very narrow. At different times, I had to grab a tree branch to not slide into the off the cliff there. Um, It has some areas that do go straight down practically if you're not on the path. And it's a one-way trip. You, as far as you walk in, that's how far you got to walk back out. So it's, it's quite something. It's very wilderness, which is amazing because it's not far from town at all. It's, it's, you know, it's a couple miles, but it's, you're suddenly in, Suddenly, you're in the deep woods, and it is very thick. Uh, the brush and trees and everything are usually right 
on you. And I mean, it's, it's a little more <laughs> intense cardio than I was necessarily ready for. Um, Stephen completed, he went to the end. I went most of the way to the end and then had to sit down on a stump for a while and catch my breath. <laughs> um, so yes, I appreciate your patience, by the way, Stephen. Because uh, <laughs> I know that I walk not quite as fast as you do. And I was just, my biggest concern was, God, I hope nobody twists an ankle or something out here. Because we're in the middle of nowhere. Um, there's no, you're not nearby something else. You're you're there. I don't know what they do if you call 911 from there. I have no idea. how Because vehicles, I don't know, can't get back there. There's no, there's no access. You're on foot. That's what it is. You know, and... It's you're suddenly in the deep woods and it's a very in the woods vibe. At the same time, people apparently go there at night and do things. Um, we saw what I can only describe as altars. I, I'm sorry, they're altars. I could know an altar when I'm looking at one. And we saw strange circles of stones, just odd things. And you know, it was very interesting. Yeah, from the um, pictures that Stephen sent me, um, it, he said that the uh, all the trees within that clearing or the opening uh, were all circled with stones, and then um, there was like a twisted tree and a cairn, a rock cairn. Yes, and oh, there were also rock cairns. And then also, um, I wanted to get your explanation on the red rope image that you sent me. <laughs> that looked like some kind of booby trap from the way I saw it, but I wasn't sure if there was any other functionality to it. Do you know, Stephen? It's a good question. So you we could go here with the skeptic explanation. Um, I did a little bit of digging here, and it seems that uh, the aforementioned uh, Mary Sutherland mm -hmm. uh, does the tours in the Vortex. So, in theory, well, okay, I should I should probably set the stage here for this a little bit for you guys. So, when we're talking about this rope thing, Vincent and I are walking along uh, the trail. And yes, I can confirm that this is... It's a very strange thing because, um, first, the trail is quite long. I want to say it's probably at least a mile and a half or something like that, and it's full length. Um, the woods are pretty thick. You're kind of going up and down like a lot of valleys and plateaus and stuff. And it's, I think on one side you have like a large uh, like lake or something. And then on the other side, it's just like a bunch of swampland and what have you. So the trail kind of cuts through like this very narrow stretch of land uh, that's not and uh, you know, wetlands or something like that, right? So anyway, you get into this one area with the trail where you're at a very elevated point, and uh, we came upon this tree uh, that had a suspension cord attached to it, and I tracked it down. So the tree is at kind of the cusp of this valley that's probably what vincent a good 20 30 feet or something below it it's oh i see even more than that yeah it was very steep it was very deep. steep it was very steep the rope runs 
um okay so that you have the valley and then it goes back up on the other side to about the same height and the rope runs from one tree uh, to another tree on the other side of the valley at uh, the high point so what i'm trying to get at is this suspension rope i mean it's when you're at the bottom of the valley it's probably a good 20 to 30 feet off the ground okay and it would then so okay we're trying to figure out like the purpose of this and looking at the whole thing with them possibly doing a ghost hunt here afterwards i had kind of thought well maybe mary sutherland wants to spice things up so you know maybe they have something attached to this wooden stump thing and they send it down at the people or something like that but there's a couple of problems with this a unless there was another path that i wasn't seeing and i did kind of look around for this when i was down there it's very steep it's not the easiest way to walk down there um I didn't walk down there because I knew I wasn't going to make it back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm in reasonably good shape. Even I'm about 40. And I mean, you know, most younger people probably would be able to manage this fairly well. But I mean, a lot of people who do the ghost hunt tours are not necessarily in peak, um, you know, physical condition. So I would think that for something like this to have maximum effect, uh you know, you would need them down in the valley, right? And it would be easier said than done getting a group down there. And then the other thing is, okay, so you have like, I don't know, let's just say like a, a scarecrow or something hooked up to this thing. You release it, it starts going down, you know, the suspension cord. And about midway through, it's just going to stop and like hang there. Mm -hmm. And you would have to, like, attach a rope to it and pull it back because, again, it's just too steep in the other side for the inertia to pull it back up. And conversely, too, I mean, if this was being used for some sort of weird, you know, American gladiators kind of, you know, obstacle course or something like that, it's, it's the same thing. Okay, you're going to do this, like, epic swing down on the suspension rope and you know dangling from this piece of wood on it and uh, okay again you know your inertia is going to stop and you're basically going to be midway through when it does stop and you're going to be dangling like you know 20 30 feet from the ground so once again what the fuck do you do uh you know the only thing is the guy would either have to let go and fall onto a trampoline or I don't know, like a sheet that people are holding up for him or something like that, or they would you know, have, they'd have to make another like belay hook to it to pull him back. Yeah, there would have to be another hook or something to pull him back, and it just it seemed kind of silly though for for that. It kind just of seemed reason. so rick. Like imagine the most rickety carnival ride you've ever seen, at, like a county fair. It was way worse than that. It just looked yeah. like the most unsafe thing you could possibly have. I mean, like, I know some of these, you know, I mean, I know some like these fraternities and stuff like that do some pretty intense, you know, hazing things for like initiation rates. But yeah, this just didn't seem like it made a lot of sense. And like I was saying again, you know, I mean, if you were trying to attach like ropes or something to pull the guy back, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's a couple of hundred yards from where from one tree that the rope is attached to to the other one so you would need a long fucking line to pull this guy back you know what i'm saying it's it just for a lot of 
it just didn't make a lot of sense on any number of levels other than potentially if you're just going to hang something up and suspend it there over the center of this valley which would be the main thing that i could think of i'm just i'm just speculating but but only thing I thought of was this is a trap. Okay, this or is it not. Could be well, that's so that's the first trap. thing I thought was this is like some kind of Home Alone style booby trap. But the thing <laughs> is, is again, is it's not something that would because you would think that you would want it as a trap uh, along the trail, right? Yeah, it's, you know, it's not there by the trail. I mean, you would oh, have no. to be down into the valley for it to really work again as some kind of like Home Alone esque trap. Because yeah, maybe you could have like boulders or something attached to the 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 piece of wood or something and then you have like a a line attached to like a sheet holding them there and you can pull it as they're swinging down they fall on somebody but once again they've got to get down into the valley and frankly it would just be easier to push somebody down that narrow ass path or (laughs) (laughs) elaborate like trying to set up this trap and lure them down there and then yeah it just really weird it was a very odd piece of equipment to find which took some serious work to build but is just rickety as can be yeah it it just did not make a lot of sense on any number of levels um you know i'm gonna have some pictures of this stuff up in the patreon section if you guys are curious to check that out but yes it was very strange and then just a few other observations i mean the trees in this place were very weird i even had remarked to vincent when we were there this is like something like out of the uh the wizard of oz you know with those the sets there with those sort of like uh living tree monster thingies i mean that was almost like what i was thinking of they almost i mean in fact i think vincent thought they saw a face in one of them i mean they did almost alive at a few points i mean they were very (laughs) what time of day did you guys go we were in the middle of the freaking afternoon, too. Okay. Man. I can only imagine what it'd be like being seeing those damn yeah. things at night. Man. I would not care to go there at night. Um, okay, I, have, and- I have a newfound respect for Mary then, because she's she's no spring chicken. So if she's still going out there giving tours, um, you know, and having experiences, that's pretty awesome. And um, getting into yeah. the spot Vincent was talking about. So this is sort of like another clearing area. And it looked like there was also a spot for um, probably some kind of fire pit there. You've got the circle. You've got like these stones around the trees there. And then there were also those rock formations that were stacked up that Benson and I noted. And it was interesting, too, because you could kind of see from a specific angle that they were all aligned to one another. So I was wondering if that was um possibly for use with maybe the solstices or something like that i mean obviously it would be a little difficult to even see something like that back there in those thick woods but it was interesting that they were in alignment with one another so this had really reminded me a lot of the portal into the black lodge that you see in twin peaks in the second season uh in the sherwood forest there I believe it was kind of a similar setup where they had like the rocks around like a lot of the trees and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I almost wondered if this was specifically where somebody had kind of singled out at some point as sort of the heart of the vortex. It, mm-hmm. it definitely, as Vincent said, had a very strong ritualistic feel to it. I mean, obviously with the 
rock formations and i should point these are like stacks of rocks i mean i'm this is something that somebody physically built there it's not um oh yeah natural made that yeah so well i mean yeah i mean you know what i'm talking about Vince. i'm just people who weren't there with us i'm trying to illustrate when i say rock formation i don't just mean it was like you know a certain way that it had been eroded by the winds or something i mean these were actual like stacks of rocks and stuff like that that we were seeing there which was really fascinating but yeah it it had a very temple-esque feel to it uh and this was a bit of a distance too from the weird tree you know uh suspension rope thing um though that was i guess closer to maybe the other exit but yeah it was it was a very strange thing um and then there were also the way voices carried in there too it was i know when vince and i were walking in there it definitely sounded like there were some kids at some point in the uh the park quote unquote but we never encountered anybody and it you know I, I just can't imagine that they would have been down in the swamp there i mean the grass was so overgrown and what have you and i mean i think we would have probably seen some kind of dentures in the terrain from them or something like that so i mean i can only imagine that the voices must have been you know um carrying from a distance but it was still very odd and just in general like i said you know this is a fairly big spot um but it's not clearly marked at all there's you know no real at all or anything for it like on the roads and what have you i mean you could easily just drive by the parking lot and never even realize that there was something there even though it is a considerable site of considerable size so so there's a lot about it that just doesn't make a lot of sense but certainly yeah why you have a trail that long and just absolutely nothing to really yeah indicate that it's even there yeah i know um tim renner he talks a lot about um site seven on his podcast so it kind of uh reminds me of that just not not very big but when you're in it it just feels like you're you're disconnected so it's yes. definitely uh, high on my list to uh to go explore along with the uh the, the ruins of old Morhi. Absolutely. And again, we did hear some voices, but we did not see another human being the entire time. Hmm. And we were there for a couple of hours in the middle of the day. Yeah. So I can't, if you want some privacy, you go there at night, there's not going to be anybody else around. And somebody goes there at least and walks like a mile into it to do something with these rock altars. I, something happens there. All right. Yeah, that's a good point, too. The rock altars are like a bit of a ways in there, too. So, you know, it's not like something that's kind of like right there, like by the entrance or something like that. You would be walking a little bit uh, going in there at night. All right, to wrap up, I wanted uh, to get into Twin Peaks here a little more with you guys. So beyond the similarities the Vortex has, the Black Lodge portal in Twin Peaks is Sherwood Forest. Burlington has a few other peaks-like characteristics, most notably how it is such a small and obscure town seems capable of wielding such a cultural influence abroad. One is left with an eerie sense of forces present in this region that are determined to be acknowledged on a much broader scale. So what are your guys' thoughts? Uh, do you want to start us off, Jeff? Yeah, so I, I know this evening we really honed in on the small town of Burlington. But we'd really be remiss to not acknowledge the general weirdness, uh, general weirdness of the entire area. Now, 
when you're in Burlington, you're only a few miles as the crow flies from Lake Geneva. Now that place has a really rich and deep history and haunted history. So in fact, the RPG Dungeons and Dragons was invented and distributed by TRS right there in Lake Geneva. Now, if there's any other game that had a more stunning effect on the broader culture, besides maybe the Ouija board, I can't name it. And then you look at the proximity of like Elkhorn. You got the Beast of Bray Road phenomenon right there. It's like the next town over from Burlington. We got to add add that to it. And then uh, the next town over from um, Elkhorn, you got Delavan that Stephen mentioned earlier. That was an early circus town, Wisconsin's first circus town. Now you got that dualistic clown energy that um, you and Paul Stops have talked about. You got that huckster-ish energy from P.T. Barnum, which spawned into the offshoot of that traveling circus. A tie-in, the Ringling Brothers, their links to Freemasonry into the circus. You can't overlook that. And not to mention the supposed giant bones that were uncovered on a golf course uh, right there, allegedly right there in Delavan. And then you go a little more northwest. You got Whitewater, that's Second Salem. It's known for its general witchiness and also its early influence on spiritualism movement. So um, for those that that don't know, um, Morris Pratt opened his the first school of spiritualism in 1888 in Whitewater, Wisconsin. And that's kind of where it got its name as Second Salem. Now, the origins for the funding of the Morris Pratt Institute, they actually come from a supernatural source. If you look into it, it's a quite a departure. A psychic medium told Morris Pratt um, that a Native American guide uh, honed in on a specific plot of land in, that a mining company had rights to in Upper Michigan where they struck it big on, I believe it was iron ore and hematite. And that created the windfall that he used to open that first school of spiritualism. Now, Burlington itself, it's saccharine sweet. It's uh, home to Nestle, as Stephen mentioned in uh, the intro. The chocolate factory is there. Um, They actually named it Chocolate City USA for uh, tourism reasons. So you get kind of this, you know, saccharine sweet vibe, but you have these undercurrents of weirdness. Um, And then you look at um, Burlington itself. It's between two rivers. It's between two counties. It's both part of Racine and Walworth County. It's divided by two glacial lobes. So you guys talked about being in the Burlington vortex and seeing all of this extra stone. There's a good chance that is moraine left there by the termination of the glaciers that rolled through there. There was two separate lobes of glaciers that left their deposits right there through Burlington and Elkhorn. Now, if you look at a USGS map of the area, there's a strong electromagnetic presence right there between um, Burlington, Elkhorn, Lake Geneva. And let's just say it's liminal as fuck. It's a space in between. Now, if the Twin Peaks wasn't a fictitious town somewhere in the mountains of Washington, it could easily have been set right there in Burlington, Wisconsin. 
Also, too, the Slender Man thing, Vincent, uh, that's not too far from there. Right? Not far from Waukesha. Either. Not far at all. Yes. We're both the originator of the Slender Man creepypasta, lived there at the time he wrote that. And then, of course, the notorious um, young girls who committed attempted murder um, under the influences of what they described as Slender Man were also from Waukesha. It all took place, it, the circle is all in Waukesha, which mm-hmm. is fairly close to Burlington. You'd mentioned earlier, Jeff, that Ray Palmer was uh, publishing Fate Magazine. Uh, was it Fate Magazine or Amazing Stories? Out of Or both? Out of, uh, I believe both. Um, okay. Yeah, and the, the Shaver Mysteries. He left, uh, Fate, if I remember, came after around the time he was wrapping up his association with Amazing Stories. Fate was kind of like started to like pursue his more like esoteric, you know, interests. Yeah. So definitely the UFO uh, mythos, the Shaver Mysteries stuff that was published out of his Amherst home. So that's coming out of Amherst, Wisconsin. And then August Durleth is keeping alive H.P. Lovecraft's work out of um sock city sock city right on yes um so <laughs> wisconsin's producing this huge cultural influence for its size and for a fairly rural environment it's producing an outsized well, it's, peculiar uh, it's disproportionate influence too it's not just like it i mean you know it's not like these are just like sort of like prairie house depictions or something like that that are norman rockwell kind of stuff that's coming <laughs> out of it either this is very in a lot of cases, like avant-garde art and culture we're talking about here. Well, it's it's really a subculture. And you look, like I said, you know, on the surface, Chocolate City, USA, Burlington, Wisconsin, uh, nearby Elkhorn. It's called the Christmas card town because of these um, watercolor Christmas cards that were produced in there. And you have, you know, just this uh, veneer of this homey, like you said, Norman Rockwell-esque quality to it. With this undercurrent of just weirdness, and like like you said, tying in the Ray Palmer, um, the uh, August Thurless stuff, and then and then you got D and D Dungeons Dungeons and Dragons. Is there any more also, too, influential got, uh, RPG game? No, you got Go that uh, that res- uh, recording studio in Lake Geneva too. That was actually based on the resort Hugh Hefner put there. But um, yeah, it was the Playboy Club. It's now the Lake Geneva. I think the Grand Geneva club now and it was uh but this home to some of the first industrial um metal recordings yeah yeah i mean because wax tracks again was based right out of chicago there so they would uh, send a lot of the artists there to record the uh, nine inch nails broken albums recorded there um i think it was i can't remember if plasm 69 was the ministry album but one of the big ones was recorded there and there were some other acts too the red hot chili peppers i think cut some stuff there so um you know again very big uh on a cultural scale even though it's not really a very well-known region at all so yeah very very curious oh uh, do you guys have anything else to add here before we sign off i think we've covered a lot of material i've got more to say about james strang and the strangites but that's for a different time um no uh this was just a very interesting uh trip and I'm really glad we took it. Yeah, no, definitely. And uh, Jeff, yeah, we hope to get out there one of these days. Hopefully we can uh, hook up and maybe explore the Vortex together or something. Definitely. Yeah, there's there's so many uh, places just in my home state that I haven't uh, haven't uh, really discovered or really 
looked into and uh you know burlington is now on the top of that list so i gotta plan that expedition so i appreciate you guys having me on tonight to discuss it further yeah oh i've learned a ton from you jeff i lived here my whole life and i'm like how did i not know about some of this stuff <laughs> there's always something more to learn about your your home there is there is man i mean just i remember uh one of the times I was out there with Clay, I think, I mean, we were just like driving along and we saw like the huge uh, transformer, I mean, almost like 20 feet uh, off the side of the road. And I was like, what is this? And we just got into Wisconsin Dells and we're seeing just all of these insane, like kind of little theme park type stuff. But yeah. It's just the, the strangeness of Wisconsin. You'll just randomly encounter something like that. Yeah, the uh, the Dells is kind of like a, a dumping ground for that um, kind of kitschy, touristy art. But uh, uh, it also has, uh, you know, a lot of um, Indian lore and uh, a lot of history there. Exactly. I and mean, that's why Wisconsin is so fascinating. It's sort of the combination of the kitsch and the, um, the high strangeness and the deeper lore all kind of at play simultaneously. Definitely. Oh, on that note, uh, we will sign off for now. As always, I want to thank you guys so much for listening. And as always, good night and good luck to you all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up. Sick and tired of fucking up. Sick and tired of pushing luck. Voodoo blue got juice in it. Swallow what I'm about to spit. Don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing this. I took it to the goat chain We were ready, my people there, they feeling me Down low, skin roll, more characters than Stephen King Said I'm just working at the quarry, y'all I ain't in a hurry, y'all Come on, baby, pick me up Out here in my wiki up Stuck down in this stick, hut is hot as hell I tell you what, put it up and knock it down Moving on that big around Come on, mama, jump Cause they done let the wolves out They're coming with that heat Mama shooting up the street Mama fight or flight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat Mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street Tell me that you good for it You want peace Go to war for it Say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump baby, we gotta go Can't patrol it off from Berlin to the Great While the greatest walls are bound to fall So legalize it, Vato, about a Genghis Chapo Come on, legalize it, no need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer, everybody even caught a realized If a farmer don't make cash money When we rock that stash, honey, best believe They sooner take it out your ass, Sunday. 
What? 